female startup founders, and they are sadly few and far between in tech. You'll often hear a single refrain from them. Raising money is hard. Of course, raising money isn't easy for anyone. Well, maybe for some people it is. But the percentages of VC deals that go to female-led startups is pitifully small. Before the pandemic, it was around 2%. And since the pandemic upended everything in the world these days, would you believe that things have actually gotten worse? Well, they have. So last week, Jessica Lesson, who is the information's founder and editor-in-chief, wrote a piece about that dismal state of affairs. And on this episode of the Informations 401, I speak with our VC reporter, Kate Clark, who's been covering this topic for years. And for the segment, I also spoke to two female founders, Tracy Chow, who is the founder of Block Party, which is a tech company that's trying to curb online harassment, and to Sarah Mauskoff, founder of online childcare and preschool community Winnie. They share their stories about what it's like trying to raise money as a female founder, and they share their mixed outlooks on whether or not it's getting any better. Then in part two of the episode, Corey Weinberg is talking to our Google reporter, Nick Bastone, and to Liz Fosslane, an executive at Humu, which is a company that measures workplace behavior, to talk about whether or not the work from home era has made us more or less efficient. I know I speak for all of us when I say yes. Or, no, sorry, wait, what was the question? Sorry, I have Netflix on in the background. But first, it's my conversation with Kate Clark. All right, Kate, so, you know, Jessica wrote this column last week that talked about the amount of investment that's going into female-led startups. And it was already bad pre-pandemic, and it looks like it's gotten worse. I mean, could you kind of lay out for me, like, what has the trend been during the pandemic uh, that has made this situation that was already bleak, you know, even bleaker. Yeah, you're right. It was already really bad. And to many of our surprise, it has gotten much worse during the pandemic. New data that came out this week from PitchBook shows that only about 1.7 or 1.8% of all U.S. VC deals went to female founders. Um, The average was already really bad. It was just about 2.2, 2.3%. Because of the fact that Many investors are seeking entrepreneurs that they already knew that were already within their network. They are not meeting with as many women women founders or founders of color. It's led to these stark and sad declines. Yeah, you know, so I was speaking earlier to Tracy Chow, who is the founder of a of a company called Block Party, which deals specifically with online harassment. And, you know, from her viewpoint, she she sees what's happening is like what you described, that in this time of, of uncertainty, uh, and the risk potential theoretically goes up for VCs, they just kind of like close down and just go towards the easiest, most safe possible outlet to invest their money rather than broaden their horizon. And because they're all white males or by, by and large white males, that just leads to more companies that are founded by people that look like them. This completely goes against all the efforts um, we in industry have been trying to push towards diversity and inclusion, getting people to think outside of their traditional molds and pattern matching and um, break down that bias and imagine more creatively what founders and successful companies might look like. But I think it is a huge failure of the imagination because they're so stuck in what they've always done and that feels comfortable. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And like, you know, we're talking about what's causing this. It's not only the fact that these investors are are risk averse right now and looking for founders that they feel have proven track records, but also a lot of women are caretaking. Um, A a much higher percentage of of women are, and they spend many more hours a week caretaking for children or the elderly. And, you know, during a pandemic, during a global health crisis, um, you know, you're seeing a lot more of that. And 
that means perhaps that they're not spending as much time working or they're not able to have as many pitch meetings. I mean, some founders right now will meet with 30 to 40 VCs over Zoom to pitch their round because they do have so much access because of the, the fact that we're remote. But not everybody has time and ability to do that. So in Jessica's column, she also wrote about the emergence of SPACs, which is obviously you know the hot thing these days. And it's a new fundraising vehicle, but it doesn't look like there's any, like the same problems that have plagued fundraising in the traditional VC route seem like they're rampant within SPACs too. There are very few female-led SPACs. And you even have situations where you have executives that were pushed out of their companies for sexual harassment, kind of getting a carte blanche to go off and start a start a SPAC on their own as if there's no real retribution for, you know, the, the things that cause them to be pushed out of their company. I mean, what's... What's what's going on with SPACs when it comes to this topic? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not probably not surprising for a lot of people listening to this that SPACs are certainly very much male dominated. These are people who are you know established in the investment industry, who are insiders in the industry, and very well connected are forming these special purpose acquisition vehicles and buying you know really really great companies. And not a lot of women are running these SPACs. I think there are just a few, maybe only one um, that Jessica mentioned, which was Joanna Coles. Um, who was the former editor of Cosmopolitan, and she she is leading one as CEO, which is great, but that's a problem. And seeing you know all of these people make so much money, it's upsetting that there isn't that diversity. Um, and I I don't know what's what can be done. I think you know women need to get need to form SPACs, but how do you how it's, you know it's not as easy as saying that. So the problem is that kind of these people who already have these these relationships are teaming up and doing it together, and there just aren't that many women being invited into those rooms. When you talk about the kind of constraints that are on women that are, you know, realizing that raising money just isn't as easy for them as it would be for a white male. Um, you know, I spoke with Sarah Mauskoff, who is the co-founder of Winnie, which is a, a startup that connects people with daycares and childcare centers. Um, and she was saying that she's found a lot of women and, and her company included in that have had to kind of focus on profitability early on, kind of running a more profitable business because you just don't, you can't rely on the fundraising environment to go out and kind of help you grow. A lot of female founded companies, uh, you know, run leaner and they make, they, they become profitable sooner because it just makes more sense than having to, you know, spend a bunch of time and energy defending their business and raising less capital uh, for that effort. I mean, what's what's been your experience sort of uh, talking to female founders with that? Is Is that been true across the industry? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of studies that show that, um, you know, female founders are much more focused on profitability and building sustainable businesses. You don't hear them as often say things like, move fast and break things and like, you know, we're going to keep scaling and we don't care about profits. We're not worried about that. The venture money is never going to run out. They don't have that same mindset because that's not really, I mean, can you name, you know, more than just a couple of companies run by women that have raised like more than a hundred, $200 million. There are not many of them. There's actually very few, even unicorn billion dollar company valuations run by women. So they just aren't able to have that luxury of going into a fundraising process and assuming it's a sure thing. And in fact, I think it takes much longer for them to raise rounds. And once they get to the later stage, Series B, Series C, it's it's extremely difficult to get that capital. Lastly, I want to end on where things have headed since Me Too kind of came onto the scene as a major movement in 2017. You know, we wrote a story at the time about binary capital, which you know was this this fund that uh, you know it, its partner was accused by multiple women of, of inappropriate conduct, and you know that ended up being the end of that firm after that story came out. But you know it was it kind of led to a big movement where a couple years ago where people were discussing this stuff. I mean, has Me Too been any sort of assistance to closing this funding gap, or 
is it in fact not played, you know, sadly, uh, a significant positive role at all? Yeah, I mean, sadly, I don't think it's done much for the funding gap. I mean, as we discussed at the beginning, the amount of capital that's gone to female founded companies has actually gone down since 2017. But I do think that it has led to more women um, being promoted within the venture capital industry. The thing is, you can't assume that because a firm has more women that they're going to invest more in female founders because that's not how that works. Um, you know, men do invest in female founders and women invest in male founders and it's not, it's not um, you know, some sort of magic equation. But I still think it's a, it's a great thing to see more women in check writing positions at venture capital firms. With that said, I think that the entire industry has an extremely long way to go. Uh, it's a fascinating kind of depressing topic, Kate, and I hope we can have you back on here next time to talk about all the great improvements that have been made. I hope so. Um, but until then, Kate, thank you so much for joining. Thanks. Basically everyone in Silicon Valley, every coder, every marketer, every salesperson has been working from home for about seven months now. Seven months. And many tech companies expect more of their workers to work from home in perpetuity. But all of this brings up a nagging question for these companies. Can they count on their employees to be as productive when they're juggling things at home, juggling children, partners, and maybe even watching playoff baseball from their desk, uh, which that definitely doesn't apply to me. Um, but I'm Corey Weinberg. I'm a reporter for The Information, and I'm joined now by my colleague Nick Bastone, as well as Liz Fosslein, uh, an executive at Humu, which is a software startup focused on changing workplace behavior. And they're going to help answer some of the big workplace productivity questions. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. So, Nick, let's start with you. You wrote a great story this week on the topic of workplace productivity. Um, you got internal survey data from Google about how engineers felt that they were doing uh, on the productivity scale recently. Um, what did you find? We found that... Um, engineers at Google, um, only 31% felt they were highly productive in their jobs in Q2 2020. Um, and that was down pretty sharply, 8% uh, from the quarter before. Um, so yeah, more engineers at Google are feeling you know, less productive. Interesting. And what, like, um, were you surprised by these results? Were your sources surprised by these results at all? I don't think, you know, necessarily like surprise. I think what was also interesting is and what sort of prompted um, our writing of the story is we came across an email from Google's head of uh, engineering productivity, uh, Michael Bachman. He sent an email last week uh, to engineering directors bringing this issue uh, up. Um, and in the email, he, he cited the, the survey. So he said that, you know, the, the number um, of change lines, which are like attempted changes to Google's code, uh, that had dropped in a, a period in August, uh, as well as like actual coding time. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Liz, how is Google an outlier here? <laughs> um, uh, obviously, huge influential company, particularly when it comes to the workplace. And, and obviously, the founder of Humu uh, was... Google's former head of people, but um, are they alone in sort of seeing productivity drops amid uh, kind of this work from home environment? Yeah, I 
Definitely don't think so. Um, I think actually a lot of organizations saw or perceived that productivity spiked early on when COVID hit and when we all shifted to remote work. And I think a lot of that was just driven by adrenaline. Um, You know, there were also a round of layoffs in the tech sector. uh, And so there's a lot of job insecurity. People also might be feeling survivor's guilt. And so I think just with everything that was happening, it's entirely possible that people were working harder in those first few months. So March, April, May, and then these things that kind of hamper our productivity um, to some extent. So for example, if you're a parent and you have kids at home, if you live alone and you're just feeling very isolated, I think those are the things that now are starting to really affect people. And I would guess contributes to that dip in August uh, And we've been hearing that too at Humu. We work with large global organizations and we're hearing from a lot of them. Managers are feeling like they've lost one of their senses. Employees are saying, I'm doing the work, but it's just not fun anymore. And it's just, it's like starting to feel like Groundhog Day, you know, and then that's, it's hard to stay motivated. It's hard to feel like the spark of joy that you might've felt, uh, even if you love your job that you might've felt earlier. You know, what is the, like sort of why, why do companies care, you know, sort of, right now you know the google stock price seems to be doing okay it, it's up 15 percent since the start of the year you know outpacing the s p um you know are they are they concerned about about productivity issues definitely companies are very concerned it's one of those things where the longer this goes on the more of an issue it's going to be and it definitely seems at this point like this is not a six-month thing. This could be a year. A lot of tech companies have extended work from home to at least next summer. Many are actually making the switch to permanent work from home or at least some kind of more flexible arrangement going forward. So these are problems that need to be solved and figured out. You know, a concerning trend um, from the from the report that we saw was that, um, you know, productivity sentiment was dropping even faster for uh, short tenured employees, so people that had been at Google, uh, you know, uh, had been hired recently and, and hadn't been there as long. That that's definitely concerning. Like you're 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 not setting these people up for success. You want these employees to thrive and be there for the long term. And if they're struggling initially, it's it's not going to be uh, good for the company in the long run. It's interesting. Yeah. No, starting a new job right now can't be can't be fun. Um, I'm curious, Liz. What do you think this looks like? post-pandemic. You know, how do they uh, make this work once we have a vaccine, once people can maybe interact face-to-face, but there's still going to be pressure to give them remote work flexibility? We're hearing across our customers about 70 to 90 percent, depending on the customer, of employees don't want to go back to the office full-time. So my guess is that there will be a lot more flexibility going forward. And One of the primary things that we're advising executives and helping them think through is being really thoughtful about when you're bringing people together and who you're bringing together. So for example, new hires, um, having a cohort that starts and making sure that they get to meet the leadership team, get to meet a bunch of different people across the organization so that you're facilitating those spontaneous interactions that drive innovation, kind of form that emotional glue too that keeps the organization Uh, creative. And then um, thinking too, I think one really important thing will be, you know, asking who wants to come into the office. So some people might be caretakers, uh, they might have just other constraints, they may be immunocompromised and still not feel comfortable coming in. 
but then also being aware of the equity portion of that. So if it's just like young people who are single and super eager to get back into the office, making sure that they don't, you know, you're you're actually having fairness and access and how you measure performance. So I think those are all really hard things to figure out and no one has the answers yet because we're all new to this. Um, but those are things that we're thinking about that we're hearing executives think about a lot. Google gets a lot of attention around this topic because they are, I think they are sort of a trendsetter and, and you know, they, they sort of get, since the early 2000s, have been tagged with the kind of notion of free food, free bikes, you know, ball pits, you know, all, all that stuff for, for employees. Um, how are they handling this moment in general? You know, like, what do you think Google as a company becomes in, in relation to how it kind of, uh, how it develops relationships with its people and with physical space? It seems like they're taking their time a bit to figure out, like, what is going to be the best, you know, situation moving forward. And, and maybe that does work out in their favor. Like other companies like Facebook um, have been, you know, kind of quicker to respond. And, you know, they've kind of famously said, you know, 50 percent or they expect about 50 percent of their employees to re work remotely uh, within the next 10 years. Well, you know, if data starts to show that, you know, people are less productive working from home, then, you know, that kind of puts them in a tough position because they've already made this commitment. So. I feel like, you know, employees um, that I've been talking to are a little anxious. They want to know, you know, w what the policy is going to be moving forward. But I think Google, um, maybe smartly, has has taken their time and said it's going to be some, you know, it's not going to look like it, it looked before this pandemic, but they haven't really given exact details yet. Well, Nick Bastone and Liz Fosline, thanks so much for coming on the 411 today. Cool. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. That is today's episode. Thank you so much for joining. As always, my appreciation to Ariel Markowitz for producing, making it sound good, and to this week's guests, Kate Clark, Tracy Chow, Sarah Mouskoff, Corey Weinberg, who spoke to Nick Bastone and Liz Vosslein. Have a good weekend, everybody. See you back next week.